Every day there are more people complaining about Boris Johnson, others saying he's the best chance the Conservative Party in the country has. I'm asking, should he survive tonight? Is it in the interests of the Conservative Party and indeed the country that he stays? Or is it time for MPs to take a gamble? We will have a look at chaos at British airports. Whose fault really is it? People living in park homes, will they get 400 quid off their heating? Do they deserve to do so? And joining me on Talking Pines, royal author, documentary maker and Daily Mail columnist, Robert Hardman. It's agony. Every morning we wake up to a new story about Boris Johnson overnight. It was Lord Guite. He's the ethics man. He might possibly resign because he thinks actually the fine that Boris got may well have breached the ministerial code. And then we have ministers coming out, 30 former ministers, backbenchers, 30 or so, who we know have lodged letters with the chairman of the 1922 committee. And if we've got to 30 in public, how many is that? Is, is it going to be in private? And is there going to be a poll within the Conservative Party next week amongst its MEPs on Boris next week? Or will they wait until the 23rd of June, that date again. This time it's not a referendum, but it is going to be by-elections that take place up in Wakefield and down in Honiton and Tiverton in Devon. Uh, and the big debate, I mean, his defenders in the Daily Mail basically saying, look, if you get rid of Boris, we will lose the next general election. But those that are putting in letters are thinking, if he stays, we will lose the next general election. I have to say, for my money, well, I think Boris was the right man for 2019. I don't think he's the right man for now. And those of you watching this who are firm supporters of him, all I would say is this to you. There are enough of those who voted Conservative in 2019 who are now so disillusioned with this Prime Minister that it's time, I think, Conservative MPs manned up, took a gamble, and yes, it will be a gamble, because there's no obvious successor. So I'm not asking tonight of you, will he survive? I'm asking, should he survive? Is it in the interests of the country and the Conservative Party that Boris Johnson stays on as Prime Minister? Farage at gbnews.uk, please, for your replies. I think it's time they moved on. I just don't see this crisis ever, ever ending. Now, there has been um, a poll, well, sort of a poll, that's taken place on Conservative Home, ranking various cabinet ministers in terms of their popularity. We can have a look at that poll now. Um, and it's showing us that Ben Wallace, at the moment, has supreme support for his stance on Ukraine. Nadim Zahawi also, a bit of an outsider to be the next leader, about 16 to 1 in the market, but an interesting one. And there, right down at the bottom, is Boris Johnson. I mean, if you're behind Alok Sharma, you really must have a very serious problem, it seems to me. Well, joining me, perhaps to t try and take some of the emotion out of this debate, because I've just given you a purely emotional response, is Joe Twyman, founder, of course, co-founder of Delta Poll, pollster. Joe, apart from what I've just shown amongst conservative activists on, on, on Conservative Home, all we seem to have are two or three times a week polls that are put out by your industry. The last one showing Labour 11 points in the lead, previous one showing Labour 6 points in the lead, and it's all within the margin of error. What I haven't seen is really any 
polling or data about, you know, how do people view Johnson as leader for the next election? Can you enlighten us? Well, what we've seen is that for some time now, the view of Boris Johnson has not changed very much. Uh, this is going right the way back to for, before the fines were handed out for his, uh, for his misbehaviour around COVID. Uh, around six out of ten people, before the fines were handed out, thought that he should resign. They thought that he was dishonest. They thought that he didn't play by the rules and they thought that he couldn't be trusted. Fast forward to when the fines were handed out by the police. Six out of ten people thought he should resign. Nothing changed. And last week, after the Sue Gray report, <coughs> six out of ten people mm. thought he should resign. So it's now pretty consistent. And that suggests that it's bedded in. And of course, if you want to change the view that people have of Boris Johnson, if you want to adjust that narrative, then that's a big struggle ahead. But what also hasn't changed, in some ways, is the Conservative home polls, and polls such as that, where it talks about the, uh, the possible successors. Because at the moment it's Ben Wallace, but six, nine months ago, the graph no, looked the same, I, I, but it was yeah. Rishi Sunak I, at And the this top. can change, it can turn on a sixpence, and I get all of that, I get all of that. But is it fair to say that about 25%, maybe slightly more, of those who voted Conservative in 2019 now say they would not vote Conservative. Yes, that's true. Uh, it's a, it's a, it varies depending on and the question. If that figure, if that figure, is huge if, and is the election going to be in 23 or 24, and none of us know the answer to that, if that figure was repeated, we'd finish up with a hung parliament, would we not? Uh, yes, and indeed, if the performance of the parties at the local elections just recently was replicated at a general election, then we would end up with a hung parliament and probably Labour the largest party. Of course, it's worth keeping in mind that the Labour Party don't need to necessarily win a majority to get Keir Starmer because into Downing Street. Because you could have Lib Dem, SNP, a grand coalition, yeah. electoral change, all sorts of reform, all sorts of things could happen. The Conservatives need to win that majority, or at least very, very close to that majority. So where's their in. biggest problem? Because I'm really struck that it seems to me in the red wall, party gate, they couldn't care less, but in the blue wall areas that are vulnerable to the Lib Dems, they actually care enormously. But cost of living is hurting in the red wall. Is, is that a fair analysis? They have three problems. Cost of living is definitely one of them. Uh, mm. It is, in all areas, the most important game in town by some distance. And the Conservatives had their announcements this week, but they haven't really resonated. It doesn't come across, at least yet, that the public believe that this is a solution that's fixed and the, the, uh, the issue will continue to bite for some time. That's the first problem. The second problem is this difficult coalition of traditional Conservative voters who may be small government, who may be very pro-business, aligned with the so-called Red Wall voters who tend to be more socially conservative but economically favour lots of spending. How you marry mm. up and appeal to both sides at the same time yeah, is and, difficult. Yeah, and just before we came on air, Tobias Elwood suggesting rejoining the EU single market might help the cost of living. So these divisions are there, they're real. Last thought perhaps on this, Joe. Can you think of a recent precedent of a Conservative, sitting Conservative Prime Minister who'd lost that big a chunk of their last general election vote that's managed to recover it and win next time round. Margaret Thatcher at one time was the most uh, was the least uh, popular prime minister since records began. Is that and came before back, the Falklands? And came back to win. That's after before the Falklands, yes. But also John Major was hugely unpopular and came back to win. Now not by the same margin, but it can be done. The question is: Is the damage too great? Mm. Have we got to the stage now where people simply do not trust Boris Johnson? 
and will not go back. I think really the next three weeks will be crucially important. If he can get to the by-elections and then claim a 1-1 draw, in effect, at the, uh, at the end by holding on to Tiverton yeah. and losing Wakefield, I think they'll probably get him through the summer and then to autumn and then presumably to the next election. But the next three weeks are where he's really walking a dangerous tightrope. Joe, thank you for being fully objective. I'm being absolutely subjective. And I don't think those people that have decided Boris is not their man anymore are going to change their minds. Uh, barring anything, I don't see a Falklands War type thing happening. But hey, now it's half term, of course. And not only is it the Jubilee, but after a couple of years of, of huge travel restrictions, there are lots and lots of families wanting to go away for their breaks at half term. And there has been a considerable amount of misery, whether it's at Gatwick or Heathrow, whether it's at Manchester, British Airways cancelling flights, EasyJet cancelling lots of flights, TUI cancelling a significant number of flights. And I just can't really work it out. Is Grant Shapps the minister responsible? Right. He says that greedy travel firms have overbooked tickets and don't have the logistical support to back it up. Is it that during the pandemic, the airlines got rid of so many people and you can sack people at the stroke of a pen, but actually re-employing people and training new people takes a little bit longer? Uh, I have to say, I mean, if I, if I was cancelled, and I've been cancelled before on flights, obviously, but if I was cancelled the day before, I'd been unhappy. But if I turned up at Gatwick, and effectively checked in and was then cancelled, I think I'd be absolutely furious. So what is the problem here? Well, my job, sitting here at GB News, is to do my best to inform you at home um, about what's going on. I do not have a clue what the real answer is to the chaos and misery that huge numbers of people are experiencing at British airports, which is why I've called in Julia Bosaid, CEO of Advantage Travel Partnership, the UK's largest independent travel agent. Please educate me. Tell me what... I mean, it looks awful what's going on. It's really disappointing. We've all seen those images at the airports and those queues and, and passengers who have waited many, many months, years now yeah. um, to travel. So really frustrating, disappointing. To answer the question, we've got to go back a little bit and we've got to go back to March 2020 when the whole of the sector was completely shut down, not just in the UK, but a global infrastructure. We're restarting from scratch. Um, the industry has been absolutely decimated. Staff have left the workforce. We're, we're struggling for, for uh, labour, um, as is the whole, whole economy. So um, trying to build back a business and we're literally, we are literally restarting. Uh, the industry has suffered on and off for two years so now. So Shap's right in a way. When Shap says they've taken bookings, but they haven't got the physical number of men and women to provide the service, does Shap's have a point? No, I don't think it has a point. I think it's not that simplistic. I think, you know, running a travel business is exceptionally complicated. There are many moving parts. So the industry does not go out of its way to disrupt holidays, disrupt no, flights. Course. You know, it does. It's doing everything it can to make sure that we've got the logistics in the right place. Operationally, the infrastructure is, is robust <coughs> um, and we can make sure people can travel. But it's but not it's, making a very good job of it, is it? Um, well, let's put it into context. Um, 18,000 flights took off last week. 18,000, uh, it's about 6 million people that will be that had 
had a great travel experience from British airports. Around 300 flights were cancelled, but not cancelled on the day, not cancelled the day before. There is advance notice. Now, that does not make it acceptable. That does not make it right. But, that's, um, but, that, but to be fair, Julia, that has not happened here in every case. There are lots and lots of first-hand accounts of people turning up at airports and, and thinking they've checked in. Yeah, and it's, it's all... It's, uh, and then being cancelled. So no you're arguing yeah. that actually as a percentage of the total number of flights, it's awful but still relatively small. It is relative. It's 2%. 2% of all flights being cancelled. That's not good enough. That's still not good enough. And as I say, you cannot excuse the fact that people have waited for years and they're not able to travel. <coughs> my, my members, I've got 700 members across the UK, they're travel agents. All they are doing day in, day out is servicing customers mm. who had flights cancelled, who now can't travel because, you know, they're having to amend. So they are there working night and day to try and make sure customers can depart. Um, so it's going to take some time before we can operationally make sure the industry's back. We've got a busy half-term week. Um, I flew to Spain on, on Monday. I genuinely went through security at Stansted, no problem. The flight left on time, not an issue. So there are pockets of, of situations. And, and actually what the industry needs to do is communicate. We need to communicate better with customers and make sure our customers well, are, are up to speed. it may be only 2%, but it's pretty upsetting for that 2%. One last thought on all of this. I've picked up yesterday... But it isn't just in the UK this is happening. It's actually a global problem. Mm. Thousands of flights all across the Western world. It's not just our suffering with this. Absolutely not. This is a knock-on impact. The, the whole infrastructure, the UK infrastructure, is supported by a global one. So it has a knock-on impact um, right across the board. So um, Schiphol Airport has had it quite um, quite horrendously. Yeah. But in the US, lots of flights have been cancelled. Yes, more, so more, more cancellations absolutely. there, I think. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. not an excuse, but uh, we, we've got to work through it. And what are the prospects for the summer? Or should we all think about staycations? Definitely not. Get booking, book with a travel agent, and you'll be absolutely fine. Well, you would say that wouldn't absolutely you? <laughs> <laughs> you would julia thank you well i hope that gives us all some sense of context because to look at the newspapers you would think that it's like 50 percent of flights that are being cancelled julia says it's two percent of flights she stakes her professional reputation on that awful for those affected but perhaps not quite as bad as we're led to believe through the rest of media I asked you the question, should Boris survive? Is it in the interest of the Conservative Party in the country that he stays as leader of the party and as Prime Minister? And I just think unless they move on, they're guaranteed to lose the next election. That's my view. What do you think? Well, Keith says, I haven't much time for Boris, but each time I see the lefty media agenda to remove him, it just increases my support for him. Keith, I think what's interesting about the criticisms of Boris is, yes, you've got the pro-EU wing of the party, the Remainers, but equally, you've got people like Steve Baker, you know, and they're also submitting letters and saying you should go. So it's not as if there's a concerted plot against Johnson going on. It's disparate wings of the party. And I'll tell you why. It's because Parliament's been in recess and people are back in their constituencies and they're meeting a significant number of their constituents who say... They told us we couldn't go and visit our dying grandmother whilst they were boozing it up in Downing Street. And a lot of you may say we're bored with it, we've had enough, but a significant percentage of people are really angry about it. And that, I think, is what shifted since the Sue Gray report. Steve says he is unfit for office, he holds. It's not about pragmatism, popularity, perseverance and presence. He is a rogue, <laughs> an immoral man. 
He must be driven out if he will not step down. Look, when he became leader of the Conservative and Prime Minister, I mean, nobody thought he was a man of high morality. Nobody thought he was going to be the Conservative's equivalent of the Pope. So I think, you know, people knew what they were getting with Johnson. It's just, has he been truthful with them? And I think that's what really hurts and upsets too many. Shoba says, can you suggest who else can take his place? Shoba, if there was an if there was somebody obvious to replace him, I think he'd have gone by now. Uh, Rishi was there, you know, absolutely. He climbed the ladder and suddenly he hit the great big snake and he's back down at the bottom. And Matt says, of course he shouldn't. Well, look, a mixture, a range of opinions on Boris, as there always is. I just repeat the point to you that over one in four of those who voted Conservative just a couple of years back in 2019 now say they would not vote Conservative and don't have support or trust for the Prime Minister. And unless they can win a large chunk of those back, they cannot win the next election. And that looks to me to be far too big a hill to climb. Now, we rely very much on you. I very often say to you, please, if you've got thoughts, ideas, problems that you're potentially facing, please write in to us, and you do in your hundreds. And we can't pick every one of them out, but one that I did get from a Mr R.C. Smith, who says I'm a 75-year-old living in a mobile home, in fact, not very far away from where I live. I pay the park owner. So he's living in a mobile home, park home. I pay the park owner for the electric, so when the £400 energy grant comes in, I won't get it, which got us thinking. Now, Alfie Best has been on this show before. He is the first gypsy billionaire in Britain. And, of course, through Wildcrest and much else, Park Homes have been a big part, Alfie, of your business. And you've, you're launching a petition so that, so that the 85,000 people or so that own these homes can get the 400 quid. Is, is that right? Absolutely. Look, Park Homes are my passion. And for the good, bad and indifferent of whatever it is, um, this is a whole different thing that householders are the same wherever they live. So a park home shouldn't be treated any different. And as far as I'm concerned, it's down to somebody to put their head above the parapet. Mine gets shot at enough anyway, so one more bullet's oh, not going to hurt. Oh, you're used to it, of course. Of course. Yeah, they yeah, no, join the club. So but, but, for, for but this... hang on, Alfie, hang on, Alfie. All right, so you're arguing, in the interests of fairness, these are homeowners, the same as anybody else, and if the 400 quid is going to be a universal hand out, they should get it. But there are a couple of differences, aren't there? Yep. You know, the first is that in terms of their electricity bills, for some reason, it's about 25% cheaper already in park homes. Why is that? Let me explain. Um, the majority of park home estates are purchased through one metre. So the rate is lower because it's a commercial rate. You're feeding a whole village ah, estate. So it's like so a wholesale rate rather than a retail rate? Uh, well, I wouldn't call it a wholesale rate. I'd say you're buying more electricity for a bigger estate. Right. So the electricity company will lower that rate. The law states that you have to, under Ofgem, have to pass on the pass-through rate. So what we pay is exactly what we charge our residents. But irrelevant to that of what somebody's paying for their electricity, if a householder throughout the UK is being given a grant of £400, considering that I feel that park homes are the solution to affordable housing, they should be the first people 
to be getting the grant, not the last. One other point on this. When it comes to council tax, park homes are treated differently, aren't they? Well, they're band A, but because they are on a lower rate of affordability. So, um, now I just had, funny enough, a tweet come through, and a council is actually trying to charge a resident band B. So I've actually said to them, please contact our office. Not on one of our parks, but I don't agree with treating somebody differently somewhere else in the country because somebody feels they can get away with it. It should be one rule for everybody. We're no different creed, colour or race. And where park homes are concerned, they should be receiving the grant. Because um, they're householders, like anybody else with a mansion in Chelsea or whatever it may be, they are householders. There are, the way the government have done this grant, they've rolled it out and they've said, if it's a house and a homeowner, so people that have got one, two or three houses, like myself, then I'm going to receive it three times. Well, you know, I'm, I'm putting my head above the parapet because I will either send it back or donate it to our charity. But when it comes to the residential parks yep. and the homeowners, we have issued a petition. I'd ask everybody to support it because we want that grant to go to the residents. Alfie, thank you for coming on and making the argument. Thank and you. what do you think back at home? I guess there is a power in the argument, isn't there? Even though they're getting cheaper electricity, even though in many cases because of the value, they're not paying the council tax that many of you perhaps right now watching this programme are, but they are householders if it's a universal benefit. I have to say, I'm convinced by the argument, they should get it. It'll be interesting to see how Alfie's petition goes and how it's responded to by government. I think they will, I think they'll struggle, actually, to say no to 85,000 people living in park homes. That is my guess. But again, thank you to Mr Smith and all of you. If you've got issues directly affecting your life, please send them in. We'll do our very best here to debate them. Now, moving on. Elon Musk. What do we think of Elon Musk? I think... What do you think of Elon Musk, Alfie? I'm a fan. No, well, I, I, look, <laughs> I think the guy is a complete and utter hero. And one of my bugbears, and you know this, is the whole work-from-home culture. I do not believe that it increases productivity. I think it's nonsense. I think in many cases it's an excuse to drink beer in the garden when the sun is shining. I think it's rotten for young people because they can't network, they can't meet people, they can't advance their careers. I just don't believe in it at all. Well, Elon, I mean, talk about a what the Farage moment. Elon has told Tesla staff that employees of the electric car maker are now expected to spend a minimum of 40 hours a week in the office or be fired. He points out to those office workers they are fewer hours than the men and women who work in the Tesla factories put in. And he points out some of the nonsenses, you know, people responsible for health and safety at a factory but living in a different state in America. And Musk just has this ability, it seems to me, to put his finger on some of the real, real modern-day nonsenses. And, you know, I'm sitting here in Westminster. Those of you watching this on telly can see behind me the Palace of Westminster, Whitehall, and to think that some of our departments have still only got 30% of their staff. The other two-thirds of their staff have been working from home for two years. Public sector, salaries unaffected, pensions unaffected. And at the end of it, People can't get new driving licences, can't get new passports. It is a nonsense. Elon Musk, I think he's brilliant. 
He's also, by the way, threatened Twitter and their big office on the west coast of America that if they don't return to the office once his takeover goes through, if it goes through, he might turn the office block into a homeless shelter. So Elon Musk doing his bit to make people get back to the office, to work, to communicate, and you know what? To act as teams working together. And I have to say, you know, just full, full marks to him. Now, it is now 20 years since the office ended. Ricky Gervais, who we did rather praise on this programme, last week. And it, of course, it was off the wall. It was funny. It was on the edges of being rude and crude, but it was absolutely terrific. A mega success. Well, unbelievably, The Office is about to have a remake in Saudi Arabia. Now, Saudi Arabia are now trying to sponsor big golf events. They're holding big boxing challenges. They've got snooker tournaments. They can't do darts. Barry Hearn told me they can't do darts because without drinking in the audience, darts just doesn't work. But how does the office work in Saudi Arabia? If it's an office with no women in it, it's an office where no one's been out to lunch and had too much to drink. I just don't see it being a success. But there you are, Saudi Arabia trying to become Western. A couple more of your thoughts before the break on whether Boris Johnson should survive, whether it's in the national interest and the party interest that he stays. One viewer says, no, he's broken the code so many times he should have a plaque at Bletchley Park. That's not bad. Well done. <laughs> Francesca says, was a great fan, but no, not now. Values of trust, integrity, transparency matter more. And it is this truthfulness thing. It is this feeling that when he does things wrong and he's caught out, rather than fessing up and people being able to forgive him, he just doesn't tell the truth. Stuart says, if they were all rushing to put their letters in, it would be done by now. Stuart, this is a very fickle audience. The letters were flooding in, then Ukraine happened, then the letters were withdrawn. I mean, you know, I mean, that's what I'm saying. I'm bored with it all. Please, please, Conservative Party, put up or shut up. End the agony. And finally, Martin says he can take pretty with him. Well, always some people who choose to get personal. It is time for Talking Pints. We've rolled out the barrel. I'm joined by Robert Hardman, royal author, documentary maker, male columnist, and we're here with what we can now call with Brexit genuinely an imperial <laughs> pint, which I think is a rather good thing. And it's Robert's suggestion, not mine, I have to say. But we're going to begin by giving a little toast, aren't we? Absolutely. Her Majesty the Queen. The Queen. The Queen. Mm. Well, I kind of feel with that. that we probably should have stood up for that. Now, we probably should, should, but it wouldn't have worked with the camera no, angles. I would, just, so <laughs> I do think it would yeah, have been very good. I think good. we'll be forgiven. Robert, I said before the break, just my personal thoughts on this, mm. Just what an extraordinary occasion is. We're not going to see the like of it again. Mm. Um, I'm pretty angry at some of the petty fogging that we've seen from local councils. Mm. You know, cherry pickers taking down banners. But that aside, you know, one of the pollsters said they thought 15 million people mm. would be attending, you know, organised events yeah. this Sunday. Let alone the number of families that yeah. will get together and watch the pageant on television or whatever. When you compare this to previous Jubilees, how does it feel? 
It does feel different because we've never been here before. We've never had, this country's never had a, a platinum. And, and where the colour chart from goes from here, I don't know. But uh, it, it, there is that sense of uh, this being unique. All previous jubilees have sort of started with, uh, with predictions of sort of doom and gloom and no one's terribly interested and then suddenly uh, it's huge. Um, this one, it's been very interesting. It's just been building, you know. I mean, the numbers of people wanting to hold parties and as you say, some councils have sort of been ridiculous about, you know, you can't put up bunting or, yeah. you know, you can't put a trestle table out with a cake on it unless it's got a license. <laughs> anyway, I mean, risk assessment. I, 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 think, I think actually there's, there will be a sort of outbreak of common sense and people will just be allowed to get on with it. And I mean, I've been down the mall yesterday and today. I mean, it, it really is, it's building up. And, and I think it's that sense of, you know, for, for all our lives, we've rather taken our monarch for granted because she's just so dependable. And always she, been there. Yeah, she's always been there. You know she'll turn up. She's always been on, for anyone uh, born after the Second World War, you, you, we can't remember a time when there was another face on the coins or the banknotes or, 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 or you know, or just, just in, in public life. She's just been this this utter sense of permanence. And, and, and now I think we're suddenly realising that she is precious, you know, that there are moments we haven't seen and her lately. And, and, and yes, frail, frail, but well. doing, still doing her best. I mean, yeah. I do think there's this constant focus on what she can't do. I think we should be focusing on, isn't it amazing all the things she's still doing well into her 10th decade? And, and I think for all these reasons, it, a jubilee is a moment where you kind of just stand back and reflect. You look at the sort of broad canvas and you just see, here is someone who came to the throne mm. when we were in, on rations. I mean, most of what you see behind you is a bomb site. Uh, you know, the age of steam, Everest hadn't even been climbed. And she's reigned right the way through the Cold War, the Korean War, the jet age, the space age, the, into the digital age. She's just, she's seen it all. And she's just been rock solid dependable all the way through. And I think this is a moment to sort of, you know, just nod and say thank you. I first met you 30 years ago, 29 years ago. It was the first ever UKIP conference. He was the only journalist that turned up. We actually gave him a round of applause. I remember that. Well, we, wouldn't have, well, we wouldn't have done it after we'd read the article. But, but So I first met you all that time ago. Yeah. I've met you out and about, you know, Normandy. You've been covering yeah. that. And, and you're, but you've kind of, as a journalist, you've covered everything. Current affairs, politics, sport, history. I mean... A real sort of polymathic <laughs> journalistic exec. You obviously love being a journalist, yeah. but what is it? What is it about you as a journalist that has made you focus so much on the Queen and the royal family? Because you've done books, and we'll talk about your latest one in a minute. Yeah. Uh, TV documentaries. You put a lot of your life into this. Why? Well, I, I never set out to be a royal correspondent. I don't think anybody does. I sort of fell into it by accident. And it was just at the start of what, what we now know as the Annus Horribilis, when everything was going wrong in the royal family. And yet, what struck me, and, and I just happened to be sort of doing a few royal stories because no one else was on my old paper, The Telegraph, at the start of that year, and yep. it was right, well, you, you, you seem to know the royal family, you better do the next story, and it, so it just snowballed. But what I found extraordinary during that period was that you had the domestic soap opera here of all the dramas about broken marriages and the, the terrible winds of fire and money and all that, and yet at the same time, on the world stage, the Queen was seen as this extraordinary force. She was, it was just after the fall of the 
Berlin Wall, Eastern Europe opening up, Soviet Union falling mm. apart. And to go with the Queen to someone like to be the first, watch her being the first monarch to pay a state visit to, to Russia and, and seeing the reaction there, or seeing her going through Eastern Europe to places like Hungary and the Czech Republic, and, and what she meant to them, and the way that they would thank her, not just for coming, but for having not come during the bad years and all that she represented. And then, you know, it was the end of apartheid and this, this extraordinary friendship with Nelson Mandela, who yeah. really was... Yeah, that was uh, genuine and real. Oh, absolutely. Well, he, well, his first executive act after his, his election in 94 was to rejoin South Africa to the Commonwealth, yeah. and that meant yeah, so that much really to her. And they were, they were such friends. I mean, and, and you know, he, would, he was the only world leader who could call her Elizabeth and get away with it, you know, and, and he did, <laughs> you know. And, and, and so to see all that going on at the same time, I just thought, you know, actually this, this institution and this monarch, you know, there's, there's, there's a bigger story here. And, is and it, but is it... The institution itself, mm. and you've written about George III too, I know, mm. but the institution itself, over the centuries, has had periods of great popularity, mm. but periods of prolonged, mm. deep unpopularity, I mean, cartoon, parodied, the mm. Prince Regent, and all of this mm. stuff. Is our current relatively high level of reverence for the institution here in this country and around much of the world. It's about her, isn't it? A lot of it's about her, but I think it, 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 it does go deeper than that. There, there is the, the, there's, there's a sense of all that she represents. And, and, and a future King Charles, a future King William will represent that too. And monarchies, really? as you say, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, it, it, of course it, it, there are dips and troughs and, 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 and it goes up and down. But, I mean, it's been around for a thousand years. Oh, yeah, and, I know. And, but and, she has a certain, she seems she to have developed a certain aura. I can tell you, Donald Trump. Mm. who is not phased by much mm. or many things. Mm. I spoke to him on the phone mm. about 40 minutes after he'd been to Buckingham Palace for the state visit. He was like an excited mm. schoolboy. Mm. And I just could not believe. And to be honest, he's never stopped talking about <laughs> me to the Queen ever since. He was massively impressed by her. And I remember being in a taxi last year. I was in the West Indies. And Philip had just died. I was talking to a Trinidad, a Trinidad, a Trinidadian driver, and he said, well, we may have got independence years ago, he said, but she's still my queen. Mm -hmm. And I can't think of anybody else in the world mm -hmm. who would command that level of respect and affection. Mm -hmm. I mean, is she the most popular human being on the globe today? I think you certainly say she's the most respected head of state in yeah. the world today. I don't think there's any doubt about that. She's the most famous woman in the world today. She's, her face, her image is probably the most reproduced image in history when you think of all the stamps and coins and everything else. Uh, and, and she does mean an awful lot to people far beyond her own footprint, if you like. I mean, well beyond not just this country, well beyond the, the now 15 uh, realms of which she's head of state, uh, beyond the Commonwealth. I mean, you talk to people in America, in Germany, all over the world, they, they have this sort of not quite sense of ownership, but they feel that she, she kind of speaks to them because she's just always been there. She's been this sort of solid presence um, through their life. And she represents different qualities to, to politicians. In terms and, of soft power, yeah. in, for the United Kingdom mm. and our footprint around the world, our relationships, I would argue potentially greatly enhanced by Brexit, but then I would, but I genuinely believe that, and I think the royal, many of the royal family believe that too. I mean, it is something you can't even put a value on. No. I mean, when I was writing this book, I interviewed um, a great man, uh, Joseph Nye, Professor jo Joe Nye of Harvard University. He's the man who invented soft power, created the whole sort of concept, concept of yeah. it. Uh, and, and, and it's the, 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 the sort of the notion of 
of influence, charm, persuasion versus coercion and force. And, and it's how you kind of get things done in the modern world. And he said that uh, he, he disagreed with you on Brexit. He thought Brexit had been bad for uh, Britain's soft power. But what he did say, <laughs> he said um, that Britain's number two top diplomatic um, soft power assets by a mile. One is the English language and the other is the Queen and the monarchy, the royal family. Not just the Queen, but I mean, or primarily the Queen. Uh, and, and, and it makes a huge difference. And I also, when I was doing this, I interviewed um, George W. Bush. A great thing about lockdown when you're writing a book, by the way, is a lot of VIPs can't, you know, they're stuck at home, they have to talk to people like me. <laughs> and we had a long chat. He was very happy talking about the Queen because he'd met her when his father was president. So he'd known her probably longer than any, any, any world leader of that period. And, and what really struck him was he couldn't think of anyone else ever in history who had known and met 14 US presidents. I mean, just, you know, if, not just, even in just, America. It's just, it, it, to have met one or two is pretty amazing. To have met five, only a handful of people. But she's met 14. She started yeah. with Truman. Um, all the way up and to of the course, Churchill here. Yeah, and Churchill here, and 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 that was one of the things that really struck Barack Obama on his state visit. And I spoke to the people behind his his trip, and at the time, relations between Downing Street and the White House weren't great, but she absolutely bolstered this transatlantic alliance. And 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 Obama just couldn't quite get over the fact that she could sit there and talk about all his predecessors, but also talk about the, the current sort of world with with such sort of authority. And they they really bonded. And I think a, a lot of the time she's been incredibly uh, useful, frankly, for this country at a time when, you know, the politicians may have their, their issues with other countries over all sorts of different things. But she speaks at a different level. Yeah. And that, diplomatically, that's so important. And, and, and Prince Charles does that as well. I mean, I've been on lots of trips with him around the world. And, and you know, he, he, he already has a sort of aura um, about him. And, and you know, he, he, I think when the time comes, he, he, in the same way she's been our longest reigning monarch, He's been well, our longest serving. Before we come to Charles, mm. tell me about the latest book. Well, it was, uh, it was uh, when I started writing it, it's called Queen of Our Times. Uh, a lot of people said, oh, come on, there's nothing new to say about it. You know, <laughs> everyone said everything. Uh, and immediately I found there's lots of new stuff to say about her. And I was very lucky when she herself uh, gave me access to her father's wartime diaries, and I wasn't sure what to expect, but they, they are very detailed, very candid. So the Queen likes you, what yeah. respects you? Well, I mean, you know, you, 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 you write a, a letter saying, you know, I would like to you know, have a look at some of these papers. They haven't been published before. I don't know what the process is, but anyway, back came the yeah. message, okay, you can, you, can, you can see these diaries. And there are 11 volumes of them, and they live in the Round Tower, in the, the sort of where the Royal Archives are kept at Windsor. And... To read them, I think it explains so much about her because, yeah, you are, you're looking at this man who was never born to be king, same way his father was never born to be king, um, who suddenly finds himself catapulted into this position by the abdication. And very soon afterwards, you know, the country's at war and he's got to hold it all together. And, and you, you get a sense of the stress that he's under. And, of course, in, in the newsreels and in the cuttings and the, the sort of received narrative is that the king and queen put on a brave face and... You know, they were there through the Blitz, and they were. Mm. But you, what you get from the diaries, you get a sense of, of, of just how bleak the situation's looking. And at this one point, he's, he's really worried. The, the Germans are pushing through the Low Countries. They're trying to kidnap royal families all over Europe. And, and that, the king's worried that's happening here next. And he goes to see Churchill. He says, look, I think the time's come. We ought to get the princesses out of here. We ought to evacuate Off to them. Canada, the plan, yeah. wasn't it? Yeah. Uh, and, and, yeah. And, and we're always told there was never any question of that. But actually, it was discussed. It was discussed several times. And Churchill said, look, I don't think now is the right time. 
And so they held their nerve and, of course, they stayed here throughout mm. the war. But when you read his account of being dive-bombed in his own home, seeing two bombs literally land in the quadrangle below him, and he writes, you know, I don't know how we got out of this alive. Uh, and then a few days later, he says, I, I really shouldn't even be writing this down, but I, I can't concentrate. I keep staring out of the window. I can't read. You know, the, the, the wow. poor man is in shock. Now, when you know that she... So to have access to that yeah, phenomenon. Yeah, and to, well, it was great to, to be able to read this. And when you know that, you know, they're a very close family, so she is learning kingship, if you like, queenship, at his feet going through this. And it explains so much. And she does her first broadcast in 1940. Yeah. I mean, she's only 14. She's now the world's... I mean, I know you've been broadcasting a while, Nigel. She, she is <laughs> no, no, unquestionably... <laughs> I think she meets David Attenborough. She's been broadcasting since yeah. 1940 80, to the present. 82 Yeah, years. over eight years. And, 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 you know, when you see how, how she was absorbing all this, I think when you see her confronted by the challenges she's faced through her reign, right up to the present time, whether it's family problems or COVID, you know, we... There's the old cliche, keep calm and carry on. But that's exactly what she, she does, and that's where she learns it. Well, let's have a look. I've got to say, oh, thank you, you for that. You. And I'm just not, I am just not, today of all days, going to talk about any reservations I might have about Charles, any reservations I might have about Harry and Meghan, because I think, Robert, your account of being able to really read into mm. the private lives of the royal family during those dark days is a really, really special thing. And I thank you very much indeed well, for joining you. us. Thank this you. historic moment it's a great, on be a great, Talking Pines. It's going to be a great weekend. It's going to be fantastic. So, thank you. Right, we've got a couple of minutes left on the programme. And, of course, it's Barrage the Farage. You have sent in your questions. I'm keeping Robert here just in case anything is far too difficult for me to answer. And one viewer asks, what is your favourite memory of the Queen? What's your favourite memory of the Queen? Mine is uh, June 1994. It's the 50th anniversary of D-Day. And I was lucky enough to draw the ticket to be on the royal yacht to sail, to reinvade France with all the leaders of the free world <laughs> across the channel in the Royal Yacht Britannia with the Queen, all the family. And, and we had all these ocean liners sailing alongside us, full of veterans, fly pass. It was one of the most moving things I've ever seen. And it, it moved her a lot. And we're actually coming up to the anniversary of D-Day, of course, so next Monday. Yeah. And, and I just think to, to be there. And then, and then finally, the, all the veterans gathered on the beach at Aramanche. And there was one slight problem. The tide's starting to come in. No sign of the French president. Everyone's looking at their watches. What do we do? As Prince Philip, as ever, cut to the quick, just said, who does he bloody think he is? King Canute, get on with it. And so the parade, just off they went, and they marched past their monarch on the sands of Normandy. Yeah, Brilliant. yeah, phenomenal. And my favourite one is being young 35-year-old, newly elected MEP, going to a drinks reception at Buckingham Palace. They invited 30 or 40 people. And the formal bit was easy, because you line up, you're introduced, and you, you know, do your stuff, and hello, mom, leave your mom. And, 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 but then later on, I was having a drink, and I turned around, <laughs> and there was the Queen. <laughs> I mean, what do you say what to the Queen? Yeah. And actually, we talked about horse racing, and it was just great. Thank you for sharing that with me. Bob asks, other than getting Brexit done, what is the most beneficial change that this government has done? Um, I've no idea. Absolutely no idea. Um, not being a Conservative party, I suppose, is what I would say. Mary asks, should NATO go in for Ukraine's grain crop on humanitarian grounds? Uh, 
look, you know, you know and I know as soon as a single NATO soldier or sailor with NATO badges goes into Ukraine, we are at war with Russia. Uh, I would argue we haven't got to that stage yet. I pray to God we don't. But you're right to put your finger on the real problem, that when the breadbasket of Europe is cut off from the rest of us, we've got a major problem.